Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the 20th edition, can you believe we've got this far, of The Media Beat with Maureen and Claire. Uh, Maureen, as we all know, is the global head of media of Arthur D. Little, and she specialises in investment and strategy, implementation thereof. Hello, Maureen, how are you? Hi, Oliver, I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. And Claire Tavernier has worked with Maureen on a variety of projects. They're great friends. Uh, they almost always agree, but not always. And that's when it gets exciting. Claire, again, is uh, a well-known commentator in the industry. She's held several high profile positions within media. Now she's a consultant, uh, both in terms of advisory and taking on management roles. Hello, Claire. How are you? I am very well. Hi, Oliver. Hi. And today, well, we always say we're excited when we welcome guests onto the show. Uh, but this time it's a special one. We are uh, inviting onto the show one of the leading if not the leading and that's no exaggeration producer of innovation uh, international tv and comedy drama in the uk jane featherston and to describe jane's rise in the tv industry as meteoric would be i would say something of an understatement she started at the bottom and rose to be the chief executive of kudos a position she held for several years and was uh, responsible for the creation of some of the UK's most recognisable and popular formats, including Broadchurch, Life on Mars, both of those award-winning, through to Spooks, The Hour, Utopia and other great favourites with both critics and fans alike. In 2015, November, Jane founded Sister Pictures and in four years became one of the leading lights in indie TV production in the UK and abroad. Some of the groundbreaking output that she has been responsible for include Julie Harji, The Gangs of London, The Split, the list goes on, The Baby, This Is Going to Hurt, It's Hilarious, Landscapers, the list goes on, The Power, and Chernobyl, which as everybody knows was a worldwide television phenomenon and winner of multiple awards including 10 Emmys, 2 Golden Globes, nine BAFTAs, the world loved it, the critics loved it, and The Guardian called it, and this is a very Guardian thing to say, horrifying masterly television that sears onto your brain. But they meant it as a compliment, I'm sure. The latest chapter in Jane's career is from October 2019, when she joined forces with Elizabeth Murdoch and Stacey Snyder to form Sister, which is a global content company going from strength to strength. Maureen, you have been dying. In fact, you both have been dying to quiz Jane for weeks. So Maureen, off you go. Thanks, Oliver. Jane, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Um, I thought we might start with uh, just a quick sort of uh, run through of your illustrious career, um, just to add to the many items that uh, Oliver has uh, alluded to in, in, in the introduction. So um, it'd be great to uh, Let's let's kick off with uh, you know what you've been doing before Sister. I noted Sister Pictures has now become Sister, and you also have Sister Group. So it'd be great to hear Jane. You know how did you get to where you are today? Noting, if I may, what I read this morning, which is, were you really the PA to Paul Gascoigne, Gaza? Is that I, I really was. I really was. That was my first real job. 
um, was Gaz's PA at, in 1991 at a time when he was one of the most famous footballers in the world, um, which was a, a, it's a, it's a, it's a, there are many long stories, but the potted version is I wanted to work in television when I left university. I did a careers guide. You know, we had those very old computers. Nobody had a computer, obviously. It was all pen and paper. You go to the careers room and I filled in that questionnaire with the sort of yellow cursor that moves along very slowly. And the, the answer printed out of the print of a race, very slowly. And it said prison guard was the perfect career for me. So um, my family may have something to say about that. But um, I, I decided not to follow the advice of this Amstrad computer. And, um, and I was rejected from all the BBC uh, various postgraduate training schemes. Uh, I didn't know anyone in the industry and I didn't have any connections and I didn't really know what I was doing. But my best friend then at the time was working in the Tottenham Hotspur um, uh, press office and she got to know Paul Gascoigne's manager and she, he, she'd been offered the job by him to be Gaz's PA temporarily over the summer because the previous person had left, who knows why, but anyway. Um, and uh, Claire said, I don't want to do it. But I, my friend Jane, she loves football. She hasn't got anything to do this summer. So I went down on the last Friday of university, had an interview with Paul and his manager, Len Lazarus and um, Mel Steen, and got the job. And on the Monday, started working for them. So I never got the beautiful summer off I was hoping for. But it was an incredible time. And, um, and I, I, there are lots of stories probably not... For this podcast but um but it was fascinating and it was one of those you know you're, you're thrown in at the deep end and you have to survive and I think that really did honestly set me up so well for what was to come and talk about a man's world I mean there was no more man's world than that at the time and so uh yeah that's where I started and then through that I met a production company called Chrysalis, which is Neil Duncanson, who were making a documentary about Gaza. And immediately, I was like, someone in television I can talk to. So I said to him, I really want to work in TV. I don't want to be doing this. This is a sort of accident. Um, he introduced me to somebody, and I got a job as a runner on a on a kids' super champ motorbike series. This was like 1992 or something, when Gaza went to Lazio. And, um, and I then sort of worked my way up, met somebody who knew Dan Patterson, who was running Whose Lands Anyway at Hattrick. And, you know, so much of our careers are luck, aren't they, and timing? Because I just happened to meet Dan Patterson, who was an obsessive Spurs fan, who basically didn't even look at my CV, just said, you work with Gaza, you can have the job. I said that I could type. And I said I could use a computer. I'd never used a computer apart from in the careers thing. So um, I very quickly kind of tried to learn the computing over the weekend and um, got the job with Gaza. But also what was fascinating about that from got the job with um, Hattrick, rather, what was fascinating for me and lucky was that Hattrick, it turned out, were the leading independent production company in Britain at that time. And that was just pure chance that that's where my first opportunity was. So I'd only ever worked for independence. I didn't know that there was another side of things. And I think that entrepreneurial environment with Denise O'Donoghue and Jimmy Mulville, who, as you know, are you know incredible leaders in our industry, was a, a brilliant place to learn. And they gave us such opportunity. And we were all going into the scripted market together. So I worked on Drop the Dead Donkey. And then their first drama, which was called A Very Open Prison, um, with the late Jeffrey Perkins, who is a brilliant producer. I was 25 or something, but I was hanging around saying, I want to do drama, I want to do scripted. And they were like, okay, well, none of us know what we're doing. So you may as well do it. So um, it was a it was a sort of remarkable opportunity. And, and through there, I I carried on um, uh, meeting brilliant people who gave me fantastic opportunities until I then joined Kudos in around 1999, I think, 2000, and stayed there for 17 years. And Spooks was our first big show. So that's the the, his, the potted history. And then I guess, you know, at the end of the last eight or nine years of Kudos, 
where we produced Hustle, Life on Mars, Boots, Broadchurch, those things, Utopia, many other things, The Fixer, The Hour, yeah, lots of things. Um, we, I also was on the board of Shine, which was our parent company, which Liz Murdoch ran, and she bought Kudos from me and Stephen and the team in the mid-2007, something I can't remember exactly when. Um, and I then became involved, which I really loved, in being executive chairman of the UK, which meant that I was uh, looking after some of the factual companies and the entertainment companies as well in a chairman role, not as a chief executive for those companies, but I loved those different genres and seeing the world. And I really enjoyed all the strategy learning that I got from that. So um, so then I left Kudos and then set up Sister, which is where you started with. So there we are. Indeed, indeed. What an amazing, what an amazing career. <laughs> um, I, and I guess uh, it'd be great to sort of uh, pick out some of these uh, sort of highlights and just sort of apply what you have learned and understood and what you've seen in the last couple of decades to, to what we see now. And I, I guess if we could start with how the landscapes changed by way of commissioning programs, because we've seen, you know, the shift from the PSBs to these <clears throat> new big tech, new commissioners. It'd be great to get your perspective on, you know, what you see now, how people are buying your programs, how you're presenting your programs in not only the UK market, but the international market. And of course, you can weave in there, gosh, we just come out of or we're coming out of uh, a pandemic. So it'd be great to hear your your perspective, your views and how things are, uh, what the landscape looks like now compared to, you know, when you first started two decades ago. Three three decades ago, Maureen, but anyway, thank you. Three and a half decades ago. Um, it's... Uh, I, 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 one of the things I love about our industry and one of the things I love about our job is that it is constantly changing and it, it changes ultimately because of technology and tech is what drives the change in my view more than anything else. So, you know, we, when the cable companies in America were allowed, had the, had the bandwidth to develop, then suddenly you had a competitive element to the networks and that changed the nature of programming because they were able to be more niche and targeted. And I, I think all the big changes have been as a result of technology. So where, where we are now, obviously the streaming technology, when that, that changed everything and became a global phenomenon and has changed radically the way that we sell programs. But the thing that stayed constant and is the thing that I've been very, very fortunate enough to be able to build both companies on is the talent and the creative. And I do believe when all the change around us is happening constantly, the thing fundamentally that you need to hold on to as a producer and as a supplier is that you make the, the most excellent programming you can and that you trust the talent to do that. So my relationship with writers is the key to everything that we do. I mean, I, and I have you know great relationships, I think, with the buyers and I love working with the commissioners and we really are open to their insight and their support and them um, telling us what they need and what they want. But fundamentally, I have to follow my gut and so do my team who are all brilliant tastemakers as well um, to, to work out what stories we want to tell. So that's my fundamental business is telling stories. And then I work out what the best way of funding those stories to their best ability. So I think where sometimes people can get left behind is if you're not flexible and nimble. So one of the big things for me, you know, we were talking earlier that I started with an independent company, Hattrick, and I've stayed independent all the way through my career. I've never, ever worked for any non-independent company. And I don't think I ever will. I would never want to do that. So I love being independent and being able to sell to anywhere in the market and being able to choose the best 
home for the content we've got and for the writers, their vision of something. I'm like, well, that would suit that. Now you have to be flexible with that, of course. So, you know, Netflix, the ask, the ask at the moment, what's interesting is that's happened, which is, you know, it's all part of a cycle, I think, having been around long enough to see the cycle actually happen and to live through it. I think probably every 20 years or every 25 years, usually, as I said, driven by technology, something radical shifts. When the streamers came in, it went from us going to the BBC or to ITV and where they would pay for script development and they'd pay sort of £20,000 or something for a script to be developed and they would then own the rights to that and we would be the producer. What we've started to do in the last 10 years is we pay for those scripts internally, we develop them ourselves, then we can go out to the market and if necessary, create an auction if the content requires that or just be very particular about finding the right home to do that. Um, uh, so I, I guess that's, you know, now fundamentally probably 75% of our projects are like that. Occasionally we'll go out with a, an idea to a buyer, first of all, Eric, which I think we'll come on to talk about, which is a big Netflix show we're doing. That was an idea first and there's a development directly for Netflix, but most of the things aren't. Um, and, and that allows you to play the market, I guess, partly because the market's changing so radically. You don't want to get stuck somewhere where by the time you actually develop something and it's very slow, our business, it's ridiculously slow. Uh, two years later, you find that the market shifted and you're no longer in the right place with where that script is at. And I wonder, as you, as you work with in this different way with with the streamers, etc., does that give you more control over the content compared to working with a with a broadcaster who might have notes, who has paid for the development of the script? How much more or less uh, contact is there on the on the content in this new model? I I think it depends. Um, on the buyer and on the budget and on the talent. So I don't have any objection at all to notes from buyers. They are the buyer, they're the people paying for it, they are experts in their own right, and their their insight is 99 times out of 100, honestly, brilliant, and I really value that. So I think it's a myth that creative autonomy is always a good thing. I think we're making something for an audience, and I think we have to be careful not to forget that. However, committee making is not necessarily a good thing. So it's about the balance of trust. And I think that's where a good producer comes in, honestly, where I, I can hopefully sit in the middle and get the notes from the buyer and then work out what they're actually saying or what's actually important and try and disseminate that to a writer so that they don't get bogged down in things that aren't relevant. But we try and still get to the essence of what the important thing is for the buyer. Um, but generally, that shouldn't happen if at the point of sale everyone's been clear about what it is that you're selling and what it is that they're buying and if we've all had the honest conversation about what the show should be that shouldn't really be a, an issue honestly um budget wise though as budgets have increased you know we've been taking from the movie industry i think in the television side of things in terms of the way that money has been spent from all those big media players they've been allocating more not just for not just Netflix, but we know this. You know, all of the big spenders in, in Hollywood um, and across Europe have been spending more money on television, in particular scripted. Although that has now evolved absolutely into live programming, sports, entertainment, and documentaries are, are a massive part, as we know, of the streaming landscape. Um, but as, as those budgets have gone up, expectations have gone up, and the funding model has been stretched to breaking, I would say, in the last four years, where, you know, budgets have inflated. As there's been more competition, the, the buyers have been paying more for the above the line talent. So whether that is, you know, 
Kate Blanchett or Olivia Coleman or whoever it is, um, they're paying more and more for those people in order to make sure that people watch the show. Everything else, when you get a great star, you generally get an expensive director, then you get the expensive heads of departments. Everything inflates up. Everyone sees a gold rush and everybody puts their prices up. And that's where we've been in the last four years, which has been wonderful in some respects, but very challenging now that, you know, the the viewing and the subscriptions are either reducing or there's a lot of churn or there's just so much around that ultimately there aren't enough people to watch the content that's being made. So there's a correction happening now and you know everybody you know who is interested in this sector knows that the last five months in particular I think this week there have been a lot of you know a lot of companies have declared earnings this week it's a big week um, and there's been a freeze on really for the last two or three months on commissioning specifically while they all got through this this rocky patch post-covid post post inflation uh, and you know the covid we mustn't forget that that in our experience we were making we made I think six or seven series during COVID. And um, those were inflated generally, the budgets by about 15 to 20% just to cover the additional costs incurred by COVID. So that's just money down the drain. But it was necessary money in order to maintain production during a period when otherwise we couldn't work and there'd have been nothing on the screens. But it that too, will have that 20% will have really made those big companies suffer. It was very hard for everybody. And part of the, um, I don't know if this is cost related or, or just simply by nature of the internationalizing of uh, UK production um, and, and the commissioners being much more international as well. Um, are we seeing now a shift from where the programmes are being making from, say, UK to other, say, European centres or even further afield, say, to the US? Because we know that sister is very international now you have a you have a u.s presence you also have a uk presence is it is it moving more outside of the uk than say well, five years ago well this i think this, again this is part of the cycle you'll you'll know that two major things happened in our industry which changed the dial which was terms of trade over 20 years ago sort of 23 years ago uh, which was negotiated by pact for independent producers to have rights in their work that they sold to British broadcasters. And the generally that worked, 85% of the um, profits uh, of sales went to the production company, which they shared with a distributor who put an advance against the programme, and then 15% went to the um, buyer, which was often the BBC or Channel 4 or ITV or Sky. So that was radical in allowing entrepreneurial businesses to be developed, and that made us all attractive acquisitions, um, which is, you know, part of the reason our, our industry and our country is so uh, popular for, for um, the global industry. Um, but But the other thing that happened was the tax break that was brought in by the government for film and television, the high-end tax break, which attracted loads of people to this um, country, which was 25%, not against the entire budget, but against portions of the budget, which is a huge amount and was extremely successful. However, a bit Cassandra-like many years ago when that started, I was very nervous of it, actually, because I, I thought that it meant that a lot of American money would come in and there's nothing wrong with that, but that we would start struggling to make lower budget programs and that we'd start struggling to fulfill the talent pipeline that was required for that. We need to train more. And I think that's absolutely what's happened, honestly, which is we've created lots more work and lots more jobs. But now we've got to the place where everything in the UK is 
almost as expensive as it is in the US, not quite as expensive, but we're getting there, which means that we're now taking things out of the UK, even though we have a 25% tax break here, to other countries that have a 25% tax break, like South Africa or Hungary, where we've shot a lot in the last few years, because they've got the same tax break, but they're cheaper costs of production. So we're already taking shows that are set in Britain and moving them out because of the tax break and the costs here, which is a bit bonkers and I'm sure wasn't the plan. Um, but we have in turn got, you know, Disney have got all the Star Wars series here and Lord of the Rings has just moved here from Amazon. So, the you know, it's a, it's a seesaw, I guess. So I guess it's it's good for the talent and the freelancers and some of the post-production, some of the, the suppliers to the produ production companies, but perhaps not so good for the production companies themselves. Well, I think it's it's good to a point, but we'll out, there's a, we have to be careful that as a country, we don't, of course, it's good to employ all those people. And it's also good for us, by the way, we've, mm -hmm. we've been able to make, you know, high end shows with big budgets in the UK. And that's fantastic. But I think we're at a point now where the cost of production is so expensive, they'll, mm -hmm. is, we're in danger of a tipping point where the UK no longer is as attractive to film um, as, as it has been. Uh, and and we'll see what you know where that ends. No one knows where that going to, going to end. But we have got this show, Eric, that we're making for Netflix. It's set in New York. We're shooting it in Budapest at the moment with a small, a few weeks in New York later in the year. Um, but we couldn't afford the studios in the UK to do that, even though it's a very healthy budget. And let's talk briefly about Eric, but also uh, something that you mentioned earlier, which is the importance of talent. You mentioned above the line talent, but it could also be uh, a, a book. It could be IP. You've just done it. This is going to hurt, for instance. Is it? Does it mean that it's impossible these days to do a project that doesn't have either existing IP or above the line talent? Could you do spooks today from start or has it changed that much? Uh, I, again, the... the the cycle happens, and this is why you have to be nimble. I think um, IP has been a huge generator in the last five to 10 years, podcasts, books, articles, all of those things. And we've got the power, and this is going to hurt both um, those for us. But actually, some of our most successful shows are not that. So The Split, which is a huge hit for the BBC, is a completely original piece. Eric, Abby's next show is a completely original piece. Chernobyl was a completely original piece. Um, so I, I, I like a mixed economy. I think um, there is now, I think that's going to shift. We've been through a period where limited series were very, very popular on the back of Chernobyl as well. And, you know, Big Little Lies and HBO leading the way, as they often do with those things. But limited series are, are struggling now to be commissioned because they're expensive. You can't amortize cost as much. They don't return. So you put all this money into promoting them and then they've gone in a flash and they might give you all the awards um, territory. But ultimately, that that does that now work for Netflix? Is actually awards for television what they want or does their algorithm need something different? And actually what all their algorithms need is returning series, long running successful series. So we're now absolutely headed back into the old days of network in my view. They've all become the networks in some shape or form, you know, evolved. But fundamentally, all those big streamers want is, is not all they want, they all want um, big returning uh, shows that, that, you know, that you can make 12 or more of a year and that are successfully going to keep your audience captivated and worthy of that subscription, which is where the ad-funded model is going. So, you know, that's all fascinating to me. And I think there'll still be room for those limited series 
but um, there'll be fewer of those and those tended to be IP related. And it's more likely that the long running series might be, if there's crime, there might be a good detective fiction that will provide a, you know, a, an IP source for a returning show. But very often now, I think we'll be looking more to originals, which would also come back to the talent. We've slightly lost our way in terms of, not lost our way, I guess the writers aren't as much in a habit of writing those returning procedural series because we've gone from a place on, you know, Spooks, Hustle, Life and Mars. We had multiple writers, brilliant writers, who've gone on to develop and create their own incredible work. But then from Broadchurch onwards, we had a, an, the split the same and Giri Hadji, these were single authors writing those shows. And that makes it much harder to deliver them on an annual turnaround or even on an 18 month turnaround. Um, you've got one person authoring that. We're shifting back now to a more mixed economy where the series will be, you know, dr driven by one lead writer, but with multiple other writers writing those episodes so that you can turn them around more quickly. Giri Hadji, by the way, Giri Hadji was incredible. Was, that was the BBC, oh, right? You. And it was yeah, it was BBC, yeah. Because sort of, that felt like a bit out of the ball, dual language, no real big name in it, and I mean, not no huge star. And how how did that come about in a different way, or was it just conversations with the BBC? Um, well, no, that came about I, when I started Sister Pictures. I went after a few writers, just a small select handful, um, whose work I really admired and just said, I want you to write your, I want one of your first things at Sister, I want it to be with you. And Joe Barton, Abby Morgan, obviously, is one of those writers who did the split, and that was our first commission, and she's my collaborator forever. Um, and then Joe was somebody I'd worked with on a show called Humans that we produced for Channel 4. And I'd really loved his script. So I went after him the first week I started the company and said, Joe, you, I need your original. What's what's the thing you want to write? And he pitched three ideas, including a two-line idea about this Japanese cop who came to London um, looking for his brother, who was a member of the Yakuza. I'd always wanted to go to Japan, Claire, quite frankly, and thought <laughs> that would be great. Um, let's develop something about Japan. And Giri Hadji came from that. And we originally developed that for Channel 4. They didn't want it. But Piers Wenger, who was the controller at Channel 4, had just moved to the BBC and he loved it. So that's how that came about. And it was one of the first co-productions with Netflix. And I loved the show as well, but it didn't get the numbers that it should have done, probably because it was a little bit offbeat. Um, although now, interestingly, I was looking, I, you know, we all get the Netflix, they push you various content. I got Giri Hadji pushed at me as number five somewhere in some whatever and I was like oh so some people are still finding it maybe who knows it's on there forever I guess so yeah hopefully people will find it actually picking up on that point um how are we promoting shows these days and how are you finding the strategy behind you know uh customer acquisition for the big streamers marketing per se it's definitely changed how how are you seeing that uh today compared to you know again five years ago it's it's very challenging. The main reason for that is there is no data available for us. So in the past, we had data, there were audience figures. And, you know, as imperfect as the Barb figures were, or the Nielsen figures in the US, we at least had some benchmark by which to judge success. And um, the streamers don't provide data, as we know, although I know that's changing. And that will have to change, because the stars are going to demand it. And the deals you know, if you're going to pay a premium, which is what the streamers often do, and they buy you out in perpetuity, 
people are going to want to know what what in success they have to be kickers for that and that that's going to have to change i think because otherwise it's it's not going to be sustainable and the stars will you know vote with their feet and go to an alternative streamer who provides them with that data so that's the first reason it's been difficult um in the last few years to to promote things honestly and all, of course netflix and amazon and apple rely on their 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 algorithm and their audience that they have on their platforms and you know so that i'm not going to go into the detail of how those work but i have sat through a few seminars with them and it's fascinating how that they take taste groups and they you know then spread it out around the world and things are allowed to grow but we are finding and i'm sure you you're aware of this that the way programs are being dropped now is that not everywhere but specific titles is that quite often they're dropping weekly again or you know the last of us hbo still drop weekly anyway which is the last of us is just brilliant i think um they you know we're finding that three episodes are going out and then they're doing it weekly after that so they're quite enjoying this hybrid with an audience who i think don't always want the whole thing to binge watch some people do but as they become more like the networks we're getting to a place really where the weekly programming is is going to be more you know more prevalent but in terms of the marketing what that means is how you find something distinctive to say to an audience to bring in people to watch when there are 400 things that they could watch and that's not an exaggeration is really really challenging and i don't think anyone's worked out the real answer to that yet social media you know depending on where we are there's a lot of that there's whether or not out of home actually works do posters work i i think they help create a conversation but do they actually get people to watch um and you know and how the marketing is is internationally released is really challenging i nobody knows the answer so i think it's uh, it's an ongoing process but it's going to become more like it does with movies where marketing as you know the marketing teams have a lot of say in the commissioning of movies at those big studios because if you can't market the film then why are you making it and i think that that is probably going to be where the very high end television projects go which again good thing in the sense that you get the marketing team behind you but potentially could lead to a a a reverse risk taking strategy i guess if the marketing teams are needing to make sure that you have this a list star and da, 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 you know so um and we are all being required to make sure that we have stars in our show and that's again you know these are wonderful actors so that's not a bad thing but it we just have to be careful that we don't homogenize across the industry and i think the hits are still likely to come from left field so we have to still find space for those to be made which is where the bbc comes in and channel 4 and those people from a uk perspective and of course the episodic drop helps with churn as well which is uh, yeah, sure exactly things about yeah rather than binge exactly. watch during a weekend and then move on to the next platform well exactly and if you can get shows that are worthy of weekly viewing then you're going to keep your audience for much longer clearly i mean it's science you know it's just maths actually so i don't i i think that will happen more and more and more but then what does that do to the programming does that mean that the programming needs to be even hookier in order to sustain weekly viewing given that our our um concentration levels have probably reduced and we're a bit impatient so what kind of programming does that mean that you can't just watch in a night and you have to remember to watch a week later and it's yeah it's interesting 
Can I can I pick up again on your um, uh, two things, which is one of the independent status which you you hold firm um, and have been very successful at do, doing that, and also your diversification strategy, which you um, have deployed. It's now sister is sister group, and you have this flywheel principle, similar to sort of Disney's flywheel principle. Can you talk a little bit about how that informs um, the group as a whole and? really how you've been thinking through of retaining your independence, given that we're seeing so much sort of uh, more, again, consolidation happening in the TV production world. I, I think we're, we're able to be independent because we're funded that way and um, we're, our investment allows us to do that. And I think the, the benefit of being independent is that particularly in a world, again, where the talent and the writers actually like, I believe, very often having a good producer who's a buffer and a barrier. And as an independent, I think that's attractive, not to all talent. There'll be some who want to do overall deals and that's absolutely fine. You know, Shonda Rhimes is doing perfectly brilliantly at Netflix and um, and so she should. But there are also great talented writers out there who like to be able to create something for a specific market or a specific buyer at a time. And I think they'll always want independent producers to do that. Um, and I think, you know, we know the corporatization of the industry. Creatives don't always like to be in that environment. And I think what we offer is something that is a bit more feet on the ground where, you know, we're, we're very accessible and we're very human. And I think the talent like that, and that's, as I said, that for me is the key to everything we do is making sure that we're, we provide an environment where the talent and the writers and the directors and the, and the cast, you know, all feel comfortable and that they want to make good work and they feel that we have excellence at our core and that that's what we pursue because really great people don't want to put their name to something crap. They want to make sure they're making good stuff. We all make bad things occasionally, but not intentionally, no. There's been plenty of failures in my career that weren't on the lovely list you gave earlier, um, things that didn't work as well and there are plenty of those but then I you know I like to think of those as noble failures where you've tried to do something well and you just haven't succeeded and we have to keep trying to do that and allow that failure to exist um, so that's the independent bit of it when when Liz Liz Stacey and I started talking four years ago what was clear to us was that the media landscape was changing in terms of where storytelling was coming from and that storytelling could no longer be you know, it's just film or it's just television. The talent was merging. There were podcasts, you know, books were providing, books were being written from successful television series and the other way around. So they're just, it seemed to us that we were excited as entrepreneurs. And I was saying earlier how much I liked being part of Shine where there was a bit more breadth to our offering. And I just like learning in those things. I think Liz and Stacey feel the same. It's just a way of keeping fresh and maintaining relevance. So we have invested in some really great flywheel companies, including traditional producers like Olivia Coleman and Ed Sinclair's company, South of the River, um, along with Dorothy Street, who are this incredible factual company read by Julian Nottingham, which just made the Pamela Anderson documentary for Netflix, which is just wonderful. If you haven't seen it, it's a really spectacular bit of work. Um, alongside then, Zando, who's a publishing company with Molly Stern in New York, and Campside, who are this group of New York Times journalists who set up this brilliant podcast company. And there are a few others as well that, we're, that we work with and invest in. And part, as I said, that was about making sure that potentially there's 
a way that material and ideas can flow through. We can all inspire each other, where books can come through the, the you know, to television and film, where we can send writers who want to do other things back their way. So it's just, a, it's a, hopefully a virtuous circle of sort of creative storytelling talent um, and allows us just to be a bit broader, have a bit more breadth and strength in our, um, you know, in a diversified, as you said, Maureen. And the, uh, uh, as uh, again, we see, and I love the way that you talk about uh, the industry in cycles over mm. the last three decades. Um, we are seeing, um, say, for example, Fremantle um, mm. acquiring, acquiring or bringing under its wing um, independent producers from across Europe and indeed in the UK. Are we now going to see again another um, round of consolidation where smaller independent producers are going to be acquired by, you know, big broadcasters or big super indies and the like? Do you see that happening or, um, or is that just... Yeah, yes. No, no there, is, there is definitely more M&A activity going on uh, um, in the industry. We get a lot of things across our desk. I think the part of what you were just referencing then in terms of Fremantle is that as as the streamers have grown so much in the last few years and to great effect and I don't want that to be a bad you know in many ways it's incredible because they've brought global content to the world and have allowed budgets to be at a level where we can really make work sing and and tell ideas in television that we wouldn't have been able to afford to do a few years ago so that's brilliant on, on the one hand but in terms of Europe and Britain, that has meant that money has been more scarce in terms of the public service broadcasters and the, the other more traditional buyers. And so um, what we're witnessing now is that the European buyers have got their act together a bit and are including, you know, Fremantle, which is a studio, obviously not a buyer, but in terms of the way that they're thinking entrepreneurially to make sure that they can still maintain relevance and, and dominance in that market. And we're seeing all sorts of European buyers coming together again, to, which is what they used to do in the old days when there were co-productions in the early days of co-productions, but to do that more in a, in a more strategic, clever way. And I do think there is some rebalancing that will happen to that. And as we know, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Apple, Netflix in particular, but the others, and I don't know their exact strategies for this, but there are more local homegrown production studios being set up by Netflix in lots of territories, as we know. And um, in order to commission local language uh, territory, lo local language content, um, which will have to be at a lower price point because there's no way that can be made at the normal US, UK budget level. So I think there'll be a lot of emerging independent producers in those territories as well, which will become attractive to European um, acquirers, I think. So yes, it's an it's an interesting time again, and and foreign language content because it's all dubbed on Netflix and Amazon anyway. Most you know, I think most people watch everything dubbed, even foreign language stuff. I think it's sort of eighty five percent, or don't quote me on the figure, but it's very high. I think that people watch dubbed rather than in the original language with subtitles, which means that things do travel well. Um, in a particular genre, not every genre is going to travel, but they do. So yes, I think it's a it's a it's a sort of rich market at the moment. Um, but I wonder whether people will be a bit frightened off by by the you know streamers and people tightening their belts. Who knows whether there'll be a reduction in the multiples that are paid and and how people look at the projections over five years. I don't know, Claire and Maureen, you probably know more about that than me. 
Uh, I remember those those European co-productions. They used to call them Euro puddings when yeah. we were looking at them, but they have gotten much better. I wonder, and you mentioned this. It's it's tough for local broadcasters at the moment. You know, the the market is dominated by these global platforms. Most of them are from the US. What's your view on what the future looks like for? I mean, certainly in the in the UK, the the local broadcasters, but even more globally. France, Germany, in these countries, what what can they do to try and find relevance in in the world that we live in? I'd love to have the answer to to that, honestly, because I and I can't bear the thought that they won't survive or find a way through it somehow. Um, but I don't know at the moment. It does feel extremely difficult. I'm sure for the BBC in particular and Channel Four and ITV, but I, but ITV has you know advertising. Channel 4 has, a, as we know, a different sort of model. The BBC, on the one hand, I guess it has a committed pipeline of money, but they can now, on the big shows, only spend 25% maybe of a budget, of a total budget, 30%. So finding shows that still work for the BBC and its PSB requirements and that still get an audience in is going to become harder and harder. Having said that, there will be there will always be new players in the market who want to co-produce i think and i think that's what's happening now you know you've got the big streamers but then everyone else is going well hang on a minute well, we want to still make some good stuff and there's still an opportunity for this audience who aren't being served or you know and as they perhaps go to the middle there'll be more opportunity to find buyers who want to make content that's a little bit more on the edges which in the us for example might be english content you know that might always always felt like that's been you know it's rare for an English show to hit in the mainstream apart from say the crown or something um so I think there will be opportunities but they're going to have to be really nimble and really clever and we need to support the license fee at all costs in my view um and and you know really try and find ways of making sure that we bring lower budget content which we talk about a lot and I, I'm afraid I haven't cracked but you know we have sessions in our company with all our brilliant team to say how can we make things for less so that we can still afford to make them for our British buyers and we've just made one that came out last week called Better which we did do on a BBC budget with a distribution advance um, and the tax break and you can just about get to a level where that's manageable but um, it's going to get harder and harder so I don't know Claire what do you think Maureen what do you how are they going to manage? I mean, I agree. I agree. With I think it's challenging, but I, but I, but I think, and I guess what was encouraging is at least the government is supporting the uh, the, the 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 lifespan of PSBs by by basically taking Channel 4's privatisation off off the agenda. So um, I, I think it's going to be about the people like you and I, uh, me and Claire mm. and, and society at, at, at its largest to say there's a, there's a need, there's a need for, you know, public service across the board. I'm an economist at heart. I believe in public goods. So uh, mm. I'm championing it as well. But it's tough. There's no denying mm. that. There's no denying that. Mm. Claire, I think you'll probably echo those those comments but from a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to, what, what I think is the, well, maybe this is my background, but I, I kind of feel like maybe the saving grace of, of, um, broadcasters as entertainment they will never can they will never compete or they won't at the moment in the current environment as you say Jane it's so difficult to compete on drama but then you get you know strictly or uh, even I'm a celebrity and you do find that be or the you know the, the funeral the Queen's funeral or the the Olympics those moments where people do feel like actually there's value in watching something all together at the same time 
uh, how it, I find it. I, I I kind of was hoping for the last five or ten years even that there would you talk about cycles that entertainment would come back up on the cycle because it feels like you know normally there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of entertainment there's a lot of drama now there's been a lot of drama for quite a long time and it doesn't feel like we've had a new wave of really compelling entertainment okay. show if you think of the last one where there was Big Brother a millionaire idol this sort of you know lots of really exciting entertainment shows and i we haven't seen those i don't know what they'll look like they'll probably be written by ai but uh, that that's my that's my hope is that that will come back i don't know what i you think, think that's i think that's true i i do think they will but i don't think that the bbc will be able to justify the license fee mm -hmm. to the public unless it has drama and that's what I fear. It's not that it couldn't make those other things brilliantly, but it's going to lose sport. You know, Wimbledon's going to go, isn't it? I think. And, you know, I mean, that's not, I, I just, I, I expect, you know, that's not, I don't know that. But I, I'll have they actually, maybe they've even announced it actually, have they? Did they announce Wimbledon? Anyway, I think it's going to get harder and harder for them to have those tentpole events, apart from the newsworthy events, which the BBC will always be the first port of call. But when you're asking an, a public, to pay for the license fee when the cost of living crisis is occurring for the next 10 years and austerity, austerity and God knows where we're going to be. People are going to say, well, I watched such and such a drama that I absolutely loved. I loved Doctor Who. I loved you know, Line of Duty. And unless we can continue to make those things, strictly won't be enough, you know, and that's what I fear. So um, I just, I don't know. I think we have to, as, as an industry, be put our arms around it and protect it. And the same with Channel Four as well, absolutely, um, and ITV too, because ITV serves a you know serves a great audience and it also has a public service element to its you know license. Um, so uh, you know we have to do that, and and I want to keep the talent being able to work here. You know, it's it's frustrating sometimes when we develop this great talent and then they disappear to LA forever. Um, to Game of Thrones, usually, I understand. <laughs> Well, that's shot here. At least that's shot here. Well, that's yeah. shot in Belfast. Ireland, yeah. So, you know, well, that's shot. That's Britain. You know, I'm, I, that's that's fine, actually, um, because that's just using great British talent to make that show. This may be the moment for philanthropy. Philanthropy and the BBC should never go together, in my view. We should absolutely make it a transactional, simple, um, and it's it shouldn't even be called a tax. It's a sort of cultural... Uh, urgency that we have as a nation. We are famous, as we know, for our soft power with very almost all we have, quite frankly. And the creative industries are the only growing, well, not the only, I'm sure there's the other growing industries, but it's one of the leading growing industries in our country. And the fact that we can even consider not having arts as part of our children's education anymore, which this current government is proposing. Um, I'm all for the STEM subjects, but please make sure that there's an A in the middle there. It's absolutely critical. It's the thing we're practically best at in the whole world. And uh, I just find it soul destroying that we can think that you know and because and the problem with the bbc is it's a political thing it's not it's not ultimately yeah. about that these are all clever people they all know what the bbc represents and what it does and people understand it but it's political and that's about the news agenda not the not the other agendas but look at the way uh, the guardian has managed to really appeal to the hearts and minds of its liberal readers and has something which is called uh, you know gifting or something or mm. sponsorship or or please you know would you like to participate in the survival of the newspaper or of yes. the you know the journalists pool here needs need to be paid and we do 
you know, people are giving yeah. money to the Guardian in order for it to survive. So why not use something like that as an interesting model for a payment system? You know, I think that that's that's interesting potentially, but that's sort of crowdfunding, isn't it? I guess yeah. which is potentially different from what the from the Elon Musk. You know, the, what what I would be afraid of obviously is one individual coming in and having too much. I mean, if you only have to look at Twitter, let's leave it there. But um, <laughs> that's not a good good combination. But uh, but the, who knows the idea of crowdfunding? But wouldn't we get? Wouldn't that become politically very difficult for the BBC? They'd be like, we're already paying taxes, even if the people who were happy to contribute ten quid extra a month or whatever would that would be thrown at them by the press who don't like the um, control they already have in the market to say that that was you know or that was double dipping etc cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't know. I think they have to be, I think they have to continue to stay relevant. And Charlotte Moore and Tim Davey are very, very smart people and are vocationalists and believe utterly in the mission, um, as do the vast majority of British producers and programme makers and anyone in the UK content industry understands in their bones the value of the BBC and Channel 4. So I think we will find a path through it but nobody knows what it is and it may be you know it is it, it, they just have to take more risks you know they just end up being in a place where with the content they just have to take more, which they do you look at may i destroy you or you know those things incredible pieces of work that probably only the bbc really would have commissioned and will continue to do that and we have to applaud that i mean the flea bag you know that was a bbc show amazon have owned it but that was utterly a bbc show a massive BBC commission, very, very brave, was taking. Phoebe had never been heard of before. They gave her several million pounds. She makes this, not her, the budget, several million, makes this incredible piece. And then suddenly it becomes owned by somebody else. But but we have to maintain that for the BBC. And I think the message there has got to be to a younger generation. So it's fine for us and our cohort. It's now needs to be communicated to, you know, uh, the Gen Zs and the younger demographic to to keep that alive. Um, and I think if we get the message out to them, then 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 it, we have some hope. But otherwise, I think it's going to be a challenge. I, I agree, and I, and I think getting the message out to them is is difficult, isn't it? Which is why the BBC have moved. You know, BBC Three has gone back on linear, which is interesting. Um, but the iPlayer is a great piece of technology and is a, is a global brand now. And you hope that they can really build on that with the appeal to the younger audience although my children who are 14 and 12 you know really just automatically do not go to BBC they go to Netflix immediately that's the, and Disney that's the first open the TV that's what happens well we're we're moving towards the end of the podcast and this was a bit of a, a, a slightly depressing side of the conversation even though it was very exciting and energizing to start with not because of you Jane just because of the situation that we find ourselves in so I want before we before we close I was wondering uh whether you'd have any recommendations for us of things to watch you've already mentioned the Pamela Anderson documentary uh, which I am uh, putting on my list. Any any cool things that we should be watching right now? I'm, I'm just going to preempt that by saying, first of all, you know, yes, that was a bit depressing, but I do think, I really fundamentally believe, honestly, that good content will always find a way of being made because that's what audiences want. So I don't, I, I'm not depressed about the industry. I'm worried for the BBC's health. Um, but as I said, there are great people there. So I think, 
they'll figure something out. Um, but I do think there will always be an appetite for stuff that's made really, really well by great people who care about what they do. So, um, and innovation is the key for me for that. You have to just keep innovating and keep being brave in what you're doing with that. So I don't think that's a problem, honestly. And in terms of what I watch, I don't watch enough, <laughs> honestly, because I watched the first episode of nearly everything. So I know what's going on in the market. But I find it, I've, there are very few things that I get to the end of. And when I do, then I know that it's something that I've really loved as a punter. Um, so, you know, White Lotus, I loved, you know, as a punter, Succession. Um, you know, the things that probably won't be that surprising to you. The Bear is brilliant. Have you watched The Bear? Yes, I love I really it. love the offer on Paramount Plus recently. I really love that. Ooh, um, okay. I love Somewhere Boy on Channel 4. I thought that was really brilliant. Uh, I love Derry Girls. I love Derry Girls. Um, I love Emily in Paris. Oh, it's confession. Oh. Love that. Um, love the clothes. Love the frocks. Uh, you know, The Last of Us at the moment is brilliant. Who's seen The Last of Us? Oh, you must have seen The Last of Us. Yeah. You're not allowed to speak. Anyway. No. Oh, it's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, which is Craig Mazin, who also wrote Chernobyl. So, uh, and it's really, really brilliant. Um, what else? What are you all watching? I like to, I'm more interested in what everyone else is watching. I've just started shrinking on Apple TV and I, it took me a couple of episodes. I didn't like the first one, but uh, it's growing on me. I quite like it now. I'm, 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 I like half hours. Oh, and I watched the, re the reboot on Disney Plus and I thought that was quite funny. Half hours is interesting. Did you see Casey Bloys yesterday was saying that he runs HBO, um, that uh, they are going to be putting back a lot on their half hours because they're just too expensive cost per hour to make. And they don't get the viewers. They don't get the global success that hour longs get, so they yeah. don't sell as well around the world. I'm oh, re-watching like Schitt's Creek because my partner hasn't seen it. And I just brilliant. love it. I just love it. And I see it's that brilliant. you're collaborating. It's yeah, we are. Dan, Dan's just made a film. Yeah. Dan Levy's just made a film for us called Good Grief, which is for Stacey Snyder and Kate Fenske. It's a US team. Um, and they, uh, they've just produced that in London, actually in Paris. So, yeah, for Netflix. And that's, you know, we're now, we're making movies for Netflix, is it? Brilliant. Okay, I think we're at the hour. And there's some, there's some wonderful things. And I've noted, I love the way you call it noble failures. I thought that was really good. But there's some, uh, yeah, there's some nuggets. Of, there's some nuggets there. <laughs> but there's some nuggets there. Um, give me some ideas for my gravestone, Maureen, as well. Uh, the noble failure <laughs> bit. Like uh, <laughs> the, the spike. Yeah, come uh, on, that's it's, you could, yeah. it's good advice where people sort of, you know, it, it, okay. make programs, do stuff, don't just sit back I, and think, oh, I can't do it. You know, and I, I love, think the cynical failures, where yeah. the ones where I know you're doing them for the wrong reasons mm. and they fail because yeah. nobody cares Ex about them. Exactly. And then there are noble failures when you're trying to do something new and brave and brilliant and you just don't get it right. And exactly. um, and that it's just because it's really hard to do new things yeah. well. And so I think that's completely fine and we have to be very clear to differentiate it's a it's a very good point i just want to make when when you i remember when you were starting out and you pitched to us um um you know that that one that goes back to the 70s cop show that goes back in history into the 1970s yeah. i remember thinking that's yeah. absolutely bonkers <gasps> uh, that, that's absolutely bonkers and that's just <laughs> typical of something that's innovative all the people with no imagination such as me mm. think that's bonkers and it was you that thought it wasn't bonkers mm. and would work and I think that's been that's mm. looking from afar that's been a kind of a hallmark of your career you go um, uh, Chernobyl well, we're going to we're going to make a five part drama about uh, a nuclear power station blowing up and it's going to be absolutely horrible it was going to get, people must have gone chain who is going to watch that they, they did and in fact <laughs> not only that Sky and HBO were a bit like really do we re really okay um yeah. uh, 
yeah. I think that's that is apart from everything else your business acumen that's your genius in seeing something and going oh yeah yeah five parter on uh, nuclear catastrophe yep I can see that when the rest of the world that's is going Featherstone's <laughs> lost it we didn't talk a lot about instinct but that's just instinct isn't it? it's instinct you, you will have that in your business that's yeah. what drives it all it's just instinct yeah. you kind of get all well, I think this podcast has been f- as far from a noble failure as you can uh, as you can imagine, and apparently it's your first yes. one, Jane. Oh, well, thanks for asking me. Honestly, all oh, it was it was really I really enjoyed well, it. Thanks again, Jane. Awesome. Yeah, it was great, great to have you. Thanks, Maureen. Pleasure. Thanks, Claire, as well. Right. We'll see you on the next one. Thoroughly enjoyed that, and um, to everybody who's listening, hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you on the next one. Bye for now. Bye bye. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye.